Welcome to the July 20th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about poverty and relapse risk in children with ALL, discuss eligibility criteria and enrollment of diverse racial and ethnic populations in multiple myeloma clinical trials, and learn more about clonal hematopoiesis in Vexus syndrome. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Poverty and Relapse Risk in Children with Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, Children's Oncology Group Study, AALL03N1 Report, by Aman Wadhwa from the University of Alabama in Birmingham and colleagues. The advent of new therapies has led to a dramatic improvement in survival rates of childhood cancer over the past few decades, with five-year survival reaching almost 85%. In childhood ALL, the five-year disease-free survival exceeds 90%, even among high-risk patients. However, these survival benefits are not observed equally across all patients, since various social determinants of health impact the outcomes. Approximately 20% of children in the United States live in households with annual incomes below federal poverty thresholds. Individual poverty level estimated based on the annual household income, can adversely affect access to healthcare and the ability to adhere to prescribed treatment, thereby affecting the risk of relapse. A previous study found that socioeconomic status mediates known racial and ethnic disparities in survival among children with cancer. However, this study did not consider individual sociodemographic data and key clinical and behavioral variables. Prior studies have also used surrogate markers of poverty, such as residential area or zip code, or insurance status. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that children with ALL living in extreme poverty while receiving maintenance therapy have a greater risk of relapse compared to children not living in poverty. To test their hypothesis, they conducted a secondary analysis of the Children's Oncology Group Study, COG AALL03N1. Patients enrolled in the original study had to be 21 years of age or younger at diagnosis of ALL in first remission, and its primary goal was to examine adherence to oral 6-mercaptopurine during maintenance therapy. The current analysis was restricted to patients living in the United States with sufficient data on household income to allow for poverty categorization. Household poverty status was measured using yearly federal poverty thresholds, provided by the U.S. Census Bureau and calculated using self-reported annual household income and size of household. After adjusting for relevant predictors, the risk of relapse was estimated using a multivariable regression model for patients living in extreme poverty while on ALL maintenance therapy. Of the 742 patients enrolled between 2006 and 2012 on AALL03N1, 592 met the criteria for inclusion in this secondary analysis. 73 patients, or 12.3%, met the criteria for living in extreme poverty, with a median number of household members of four. The median age at ALL diagnosis was five years, and almost 70% of patients were male, with no differences by poverty group. 
Overall, 35% were Hispanic, 32.4% were non-Hispanic white, 18.2% were African American or black, and 14.4% were Asian. Of patients living in extreme poverty, 60.3% were Hispanic, and 24.7% were African American or black. Non-white race and or ethnicity and low parental education were associated with greater odds of living in extreme poverty. After a median follow-up of 7.9 years, the cumulative incidence of relapse at three years from study enrollment was significantly greater among patients living in extreme poverty compared to the others, namely 14.3% compared to 7.6%. Furthermore, the hazard of relapse among children living in extreme poverty was almost twofold higher compared to those not living in extreme poverty after adjusting for confounding factors such as age at study enrollment, NCI risk group, blast cytogenetics, and time from maintenance. Interestingly, this association was mitigated after race or ethnicity were included in the model, and the revised model yielded a hazard ratio of 1.68. The authors assumed that this effect could be attributed to collinearity between race and or ethnicity and poverty. Finally, the study found that a greater proportion of children living in extreme poverty were non-adherent to mercaptopurine, 57.1%, compared to 40.9% of the other patients. However, poor adherence did not completely account for the observed association between poverty and relapse risk. The authors concluded that additional studies are needed to understand mechanisms underlying the association between extreme poverty and relapse risk in children with ALL. In an accompanying commentary, Maria Gramat Gase from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, notes that the negative impact of poverty on childhood ALL outcomes was demonstrated in several other studies to date. A recent meta-analysis indicated a 17 to 33% increase in death rates among children with less favorable socioeconomic indices. Moreover, research performed by the Dana-Farber Consortium demonstrated a higher risk of early ALL relapse and inferior survival among children living in high poverty areas. However, she says that the findings presented by Wadhwa and collaborators are significant because very few studies to date have looked into poverty as an individual-level risk factor for adverse outcomes in childhood cancer, even though poverty affects one in five children living in the United States. Despite the limitations of sample size, the key finding of the current study is a nearly twice hazard of relapse among children living in extreme poverty compared to other children. Importantly, although these children were less likely to achieve the critical adherence threshold to oral mercaptopurine, Adherence status did not completely explain the relationship between extreme poverty and relapse. Gromit Gaze says that social constructs, such as poverty, may play as important a role in disease prognosis as do age, cytogenetics, and response to therapy. The answer to this question is not yet clear, given that measurable residual disease at the end of induction therapy, the single most powerful predictor of relapse in childhood ALL, was not routinely performed at the time AALL-03N1 was conducted. Nevertheless, the current study identifies a unique opportunity to address poverty as a novel, potentially modifiable prognostic factor in ALL, and calls for comprehensive, longitudinal collection and analysis of social determinants of health data 
in childhood cancer clinical trials to inform future intervention strategies. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled Eligibility Criteria and Enrollment of a Diverse Racial and Ethnic Population in Multiple Myeloma Clinical Trials by Bindu Kanapuru from the United States Food and Drug Administration in Silver Spring, Maryland, and colleagues. Multiple myeloma is the second most common hematologic malignancy worldwide after lymphoma. In the United States, African Americans have a two times higher incidence of multiple myeloma compared to whites. However, African Americans remain underrepresented in myeloma clinical trials and comprise less than 5% of enrolled patients. Moreover, prior studies have found that there are differences in disease biology and treatment patterns among racial and ethnic subgroups. Inadequate representation of diverse racial and ethnic populations in clinical trials provides limited evidence to guide treatment and may impact outcomes. Indeed, population studies conducted to date have found that African Americans have the highest mortality rates from cancer of all racial populations, followed by American Indian and Alaskan Natives. Enrolling a diverse study population provides insights into the impact of differences in disease biology on differential responses to treatment across racial and ethnic populations. However, many challenges are associated with enrolling a diverse group of patients in clinical trials, including language barriers, socioeconomic status, or lack of insurance. In addition, restrictive eligibility criteria have been identified as an important barrier to enrollment of patients in cancer trials. In the current study, the authors analyzed the rates and reasons for ineligibility by race and ethnicity in multiple myeloma clinical trials submitted in support of drug marketing approval. The study reviewed the multiple myeloma clinical trials submitted to the FDA between 2006 and 2019 that also had information on race and reasons for screen failures and ineligibility. Race and ethnicity data were extracted from trial datasets and case report forms and coded according to the Office of Management and Budget Standards. Patients flagged as screen failures in the datasets were identified as ineligible for trial enrollment. Ineligibility reasons were then grouped into specific categories and included renal function and hepatic function category, hematology lab criteria, cardiac function category, pulmonary function category, disease-related criteria, treatment-related criteria, and other inclusion-exclusion criteria. Ineligibility rates were calculated as a percentage of patients who were ineligible compared to the screen population within the respective racial and ethnic subgroups. The study pooled 16 trials, and a total of 9,325 patients were included in the analysis. Of these, 12% were screened in U.S. sites, and 88% in the rest of the world. 83% of patients were whites, 7% were Asians, 4% were blacks, 4% were unknown, and 2% belonged to the other race category. Overall, a little more than 1,600 patients, or 17%, were categorized as ineligible. Trial ineligibility rates in blacks and other racial subgroups were 24% and 23% respectively compared to 17% among whites. Asian race had the lowest ineligibility rate of 12%. 
In the overall screened population, failure to meet disease-related criteria was the most common reason for trial ineligibility, reported in 25% of participants. Among blacks, the most common reason for ineligibility were failure to meet hematologic lab criteria in 19% of patients and failure to meet treatment-related criteria in 17%. In addition, these reasons for trial ineligibility were more common in black patients compared to other races. The most common reason for ineligibility among white and Asian trial participants was the failure to meet disease-related criteria, with rates of 28% and 29% respectively. In Hispanics and non-Hispanics, disease-related criteria were the most common reason for trial ineligibility, reported in 21% and 27% of participants, respectively. The authors concluded that specific eligibility criteria may contribute to enrollment disparities among racial and ethnic subgroups in multiple myeloma clinical trials. However, they could not draw definitive conclusions due to the small number of screened patients in underrepresented racial and ethnic subgroups, and noted that fewer than 5% of black and Hispanic patients with myeloma were actually screened. In an accompanying commentary, David Cucci and Sonja Zwiegman from the Cancer Center Amsterdam in the Netherlands note that Kanapuru and collaborators successfully demonstrate that specific eligibility criteria may lead to underrepresentation of black patients in multiple myeloma trials due to failure to meet hematology lab and treatment-specific criteria. The former may be due to an inherently lower hemoglobin level and neutrophil count in black patients. Additionally, limited access to standard care may disqualify black patients from participating in trials that require a certain number of prior therapies for eligibility. Biologically, race and ethnicity are associated with specific molecular landscapes in multiple myeloma. Non-Hispanic black patients often harbor SP140, AUTS2, and SETD2 mutations, whereas IRF4 mutations are more common in Hispanic patients. Since somatic mutations have prognostic implications, improving clinical trial access for all racial and ethnic subgroups is of utmost importance. Kuchi and Zwiegman note that it is likely that factors other than screen failures are primarily responsible for the underrepresentation of minorities in clinical trials. The difference in screen failures between blacks and whites was only 8%, whereas the difference in total number of screened patients was 80%. There are many hypothesized reasons for this unequal representation, including distrust in the healthcare system, increased costs, and transportation difficulties but few data on specific trial designs that effectively address this issue. The commentary authors suggest that the 4Rs approach should be implemented to support the collection of data on race and ethnicity in future studies. Namely, the FDA and European Medicine Agency should require and report the collection of data on different races and ethnicities. The recruitment of racial minorities should be facilitated by evidence-based strategies and inclusion criteria should be royal, meaning that patients should be included irrespective of their race and ethnicity. They conclude that Kanapuru and colleagues have made a compelling appeal for inclusive entry criteria in future clinical trials. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled 
Spectrum of Clonal Hematopoiesis in Vexes Syndrome by Fernanda Gutierrez-Rodriguez from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. First reported in 2020, Vexis syndrome is an autoinflammatory disease caused by somatic mutations in UBA1, an X-linked gene that encodes the major E1-activating enzyme required for ubiquitilation. UBA1 mutations occur at the hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell level, but are restricted to the myeloid lineage in blood, where they trigger the activation of inflammatory pathways. Vexis syndrome is primarily observed in older men and is characterized by heterogeneous systemic autoinflammation and progressive hematologic manifestations. Patients with Vexis syndrome often present with ear chondritis or neutrophilic dermatitis and have a predisposition for myelodysplastic syndrome and plasma cell dyscrasias. MDS has been reported in 25 to 55 percent of Vexis patients, but progression to AML has only been reported in a single case. Most MDS cases associated with Vexis syndrome belong to the lower risk category, based on the revised International Prognostic Scoring System and with normal karyotypes. Clonal hematopoiesis in myeloid-related genes occurs at higher frequencies in many autoimmune inflammatory diseases. Several studies to date have already reported concomitant somatic mutations in typical clonal hematopoiesis genes with UBA1 mutations. A higher frequency of mutations in clonal hematopoiesis genes is expected in Vexis syndrome due to the advanced age of patients severe and chronic inflammation, and predisposition to hematologic malignancies. However, the true prevalence and clinical impact of coexisting mutations remains to be defined. The purpose of the current study was to define the clonal hematopoiesis landscape and its impact in a large cohort of Vexis patients. Using error-corrected and single-cell DNA sequencing and to correlate these findings with clinical outcomes. The study included 80 Vexis patients, 16 from the Mayo Clinic, and 64 from the NIH, including 13 that were prospectively evaluated. 84 healthy individuals were included as controls. Clinical data was collected retrospectively from electronic medical records. DNA sequencing, using a customized panel with typical clonal hematopoiesis genes and UBA1, was performed on patients and controls to screen for somatic mutations in peripheral blood by error-corrected DNA sequencing, normalized methylation data from 38 Vexis patients, and nine age-matched controls were used to generate a methylation age estimate. The median patient age at the time of screening was 69 years, and the median disease duration was 3.7 years. UBA1 PM41 was the most common mutation with a median variant allele frequency of 75%. Typical clonal hematopoiesis mutations co-occurred with the UBA1 mutation in 60% of patients, mostly in DNMT3A and TET2 genes, and were not associated with any particular inflammatory or hematologic manifestations. The UBA1 mutation was the dominant clone, present mostly in branched clonal trajectories. Clonality in Vexis syndrome had two major patterns. Pattern 1 was designated as typical clonal hematopoiesis preceding the UBA1 mutant election in a clone, 
and pattern 2 was designated as clonal hematopoiesis occurring as an UBA1 mutant subclone or in independent clones. The variant allele frequency in peripheral blood was significantly higher in DNMT3A compared to TET2 clones, namely 25% versus 1%. DNMT3A and TET2 clones are associated with hierarchies representing patterns 1 and 2. Overall survival for all patients was 60% at 10 years. Patients who had transfusion-dependent anemia, moderate thrombocytopenia, and typical clonal hematopoiesis mutations had worse outcomes than their counterparts without these complications. Taken together, these findings indicate that UBA1 mutated cells are the primary cause of systemic inflammation and marrow failure in Vexus syndrome, and that Vexus-associated myelodysplastic syndrome is distinct from classical MDS in its presentation and clinical course. In an accompanying commentary, Luca Malcovati from the University of Pavia and San Mateo Hospital notes that the findings reported by Gutierrez-Rodriguez and collaborators shed new light on the spectrum of mutations and their clonal trajectories in patients with Vexus syndrome. In line with previous findings, the results further corroborate the association between inflammatory environment and somatic mutations in myeloid genes. Compared to the general population, patients with Vexus syndrome had a higher frequency of mutations in TET2 and other myeloid genes than in DNMT3A. The analysis of clonal hierarchy suggests that these mutations are preferentially selected in the highly inflammatory environment triggered by the somatic UBA1 mutation. Malkavati further notes that although this study confirmed the previously reported high prevalence of the evolution of Vexus syndrome in MDS, the association between additional myeloid mutations, clonal patterns, and MDS requires further study. The borders between non-malignant, pre-malignant, and early malignant conditions are extremely subtle in patients with Vexus syndrome and other clonal diseases, such as PNH and aplastic anemia with clonal hematopoiesis. A more comprehensive understanding of the specific genetic signatures associated with MDS is critical for addressing this challenge. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.